You please rise for the reading of God's Word from Colossians chapter 2. Be reading verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's Word. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you uh, and, and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Today's sermon is a continuation of last week's sermon, which was titled, The Place of Word and Sacrament. Chapter 2 of the Epistle to the Colossians opens with the Apostle Paul expressing his heartfelt desire for them to, as he puts it, attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This implies that it is possible for us to fall short of this full assurance and for us to settle for something less than all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In addition, he exhorts them, as I do you, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. There are many who are attempting to deceive you through persuasive words. In fact, there is a constant barrage of persuasive words which seeks to diminish the Word of God and the sacraments of the church and to water down or to undermine your faith. Something other than Christ, or almost as good, something in addition to Christ, either one will do. The world will let you retain a little bit, but the one thing you may not retain are the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Jesus is permitted to sit at the table of a polytheistic world, but he may not be king, and he certainly may not be the king of kings. No more talk of the narrow way, please. No more talk of the broad way that leads to destruction. Let's open up a dialogue that will allow us to be reasonable and to compromise. 
Let's tear down the walls and let everyone in. Imagine there is no religion. It's easy if you try. You see, the walls keep people and things out. But they also keep people and things in. That's why you live inside walls at your house. And so let's... um, And so walls both separate and they unite. In fact, the walls of a building define the very concept of in and out. You're either inside or you're outside the building. And so the Word and the sacraments of the church are her walls. These are the things that define us. These are the things that separate us and make us holy. If the Word and the sacrament are eroded then the church soon loses her distinctiveness and is no longer discernible from the world. From the beginning, syncretism has been a temptation for and a threat to the church. That is the blending of ideas and philosophies. Syncretism then blends two or more belief systems into a new system that always leads to the fatal compromise of the dominant system's integrity. It's a cancer that kills. Now, it is true that we want to plunder the Egyptians and that all truth is God's truth. Nevertheless, extreme care and caution must be exercised lest we have unintended consequences. I thought about, uh, remember, seeing when, when, uh, I think I was in about the seventh grade when we landed on the moon, and they brought back moon rocks. And the moon rocks were kept in very strict quarantine. They weren't put out on public display because there was some concern about unintended consequences. We don't know what's in these rocks. We're not sure whether it's safe for us to be exposed to them. We want to exercise extreme caution to be certain that we're not accidentally importing something into the world that we will regret later. Well, this is what Paul is warning about in Colossians 2. Throughout the centuries, attempts to blend the Christian faith with other philosophies has been constant. The pressure to downgrade the doctrines of the Christian faith or to soften them or to reduce them to a set of moralisms has been persistent. These efforts have been directed at a variety of places, starting with the creation account of Genesis but it also includes the blood atonement of Christ, the miracles, the the infallibility and authority of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, marriage, sexuality, abortion, and much more. Moreover, unbelieving philosophies have sought to weasel their way into the church like Trojan horses, and thus Gnosticism and Manichaeanism, Darwinism and Marxism, And a very, very long list of other philosophies have and continue their seductive work. In addition, modernism, naturalism, deism, feminism, Freudianism, and so forth continue and try to cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, who is the standard. 
We could spend a very long time enumerating all the various forms of syncretism that have attached themselves to the church and thereby have undermined or watered down the true faith, in some cases, beyond recognition. The threat of syncretism is perhaps captured by this old anonymous story. You're familiar with it, about the camel's nose in the tent. One cold night, as an Arab sat in his tent, a camel gently thrust his nose under the flap and looked inside. Master, he said, let me put my nose in your tent. It's cold and stormy out here. By all means, said the Arab, and welcome, as he turned over and went to sleep. A little later, the Arab woke, awoke to find that the camel had not only put his nose in the tent, but his head and his neck also. The camel, who had been turning his head from side to side, said, I will take but a little more room if I may place my forelegs within the tent. It's difficult standing out here. Yes, you may put your forelegs within, said the Arab, moving a little to make room, for for the tent was very small. Finally, the camel said, May I not stand wholly inside? I keep the tent open by standing as I do. Yes, yes, said the Arab, come wholly inside. Perhaps it will be better for both of us. So the camel crowded in. The Arab, with difficulty in the crowded quarters, again went to sleep. When he awoke the next morning, he was outside in the cold, and the camel had the tent to himself. So this morning, I would like to give you three examples of how these foreign philosophies can impact and threaten the church, and also threaten you and me and our children. How they attempt to cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And I will only, barely, touch on these three subjects. We could add the list of subjects, a very long list. And so we're going to explore very briefly creation, sexuality, and psychology. First, creation. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and therefore it is the book of foundations, particularly the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They are especially critical to everything that follows. If the authority of Scripture can be undermined here, then everything that follows is now on very shaky ground. This is why Darwin and his theory of natural selection and evolution were so very attractive, because they challenged the historicity of Genesis. Dale Alquist writes, The basic cause of all the problems in modern education can be summarized in three words. Darwin, Marx, and Freud. And by the way, Marx and Freud are just... um, uh, Marx would just be an economic version of evolution and Freudian uh, psychology the same. The theories of these three men have pervaded all modern thought. Their ideas are much uh, much alike in that they are narrow, materialistic, fatalistic, and utterly anti-Christian. Their influence has been felt far beyond their limited fields. Darwin's ideas have contributed to a blind belief in progress. The academic, thus we have progressives, by the way, the academic community's, uh, community's utter sellout to these three figures has elevated 
science, economics, and psychology above religion. In fact, all of these three have been invoked to explain away religion. Chesterton says that the primary public duty before us today is, quote, not to educate the uneducated, but to uneducate the educated. The ever-changing pronouncements of science, and I put that in quotes, are constantly tugging at the doctrinal walls of the church and seeking to breach them. The pull of respectability has drawn some very good people down a dangerous path of compromise, seeking the mythical middle ground. Cameron Butel, a pastor who writes for the Master's Seminary, wrote an article titled, Evangelical Syncretism, the Genesis Crisis, wherein he lays out our current problem within the Reformed and Evangelical world. He observes that regardless of of historical science's inability to get the story straight, its various conjectures are given unquestioned authority and exert enormous academic and ideological pressure. And And in the face of that pressure, many theologians and biblical scholars attempt to harmonize creation and evolution in hopes of maintaining their academic credibility and orthodoxy. Popular author Tim Keller is a good example. Keller uses a false dichotomy to justify his attempts to harmonize evolutionary theory with the biblical text, saying that we shouldn't have to, quote, choose between an anti-science religion and an anti-religious science. Well, it's worth remembering that that true empirical science is measurable, testable, repeatable, and observable. Therefore, evolutionary theories at least as much blind, are as much, at least as much blind faith as the Genesis account, if not more. And yet the religions of Big Bang cosmology and Darwinian evolution have done an amazing job of frightening theologians with their facade of pseudo-scientific evidence. They also instruct your children every day in the public schools and universities. Theologians who refuse to compromise and cave to that facade are not anti-science, they are anti-bad science. If a scientific theory conflicts with God's inerrant word, it's the theory that requires revision, not scripture. True biblical scholarship seeks to arrive at exegetical conclusions in conformity with the biblical text, not impose humanistic conclusions upon the text, thus changing its meaning. Those who insist on mixing oil with water combine pseudoscience with pseudo-exegesis and come up with the convoluted solutions that neither scientists nor scholars can agree on. As you know, I like, I like Tim Keller. I like N.T. Wright. But N.T. Wright actually claims that he, quote, sees emerging humanoids when he reads the opening chapters of Genesis. Let me, let me quote what he says. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, is wonderful picture language. But I do think there was a primal pair 
in a world of emerging humanoids, that is the way I read it. The way that I see it is that God called one pair of humanoids and said, okay, this place is a bit chaotic. You and I together, we're going to have a project. We're going to plant this garden and we're going to go out from here and this is how it's going to be. N.T. Wright is a proud supporter of BioLogos, an organization Phil Johnson has aptly named Evangelicals and Atheists Together. They're trying to make evolution compatible with the Bible when it's not even compatible with science. Phil Johnson points out that BioLogos is evangelical syncretism taken to a whole new level labeling it an evangelical Trojan horse. He says this, In every conflict that pits contemporary scientific skepticism against the historic faith of the church, BioLogos has defended the skeptical point of view. BioLogos contributors consistently give preference to modern ideology over biblical revelation, and although the BioLogos PR machine relentlessly portrays the organization as equally committed to science and the scriptures, and there's a lot of talk about bridge building and reconciliation, the drift of the organization is decidedly just one way. That should be obvious to anyone who ignores the organization's own carefully crafted PR and simply pays attention to what BioLogos staff and contributors actually blog about. On their website, Keller professes his openness to Derek Kidner's theory that God forming man from the dust of the ground could be a description of evolution. Here's what he says. This is, the, this is Kidner's theory. The intelligent beings of a remote past whose bodily and cultural remains give them the clear status of modern man to the anthropologist may yet have been decisively below the plane of life which was established in the creation of Adam. You got that? Evolved humanoids, who are not yet human, who are not yet made in the image of God. Continuing, nothing requires that the creature into which God breathed human life should not have been a species prepared in every way for humanity. In other words, evolution. So in this model, there was a place in the evolution of human beings when God took one out of the population of toolmakers and endowed him, and endowed him with the image of God. This would have left him up, uh, lifted him up to a whole new plane of life. Renowned Hebrew scholar Bruce Waltke believes the church must accept evolution's terms of surrender to preserve credibility. Listen to what he says. I think that if the data is overwhelming in favor of evolution, to deny that reality will make us a cult, some odd group that is not really interacting with the real world. And to deny the reality would be to deny the truth of God in the world and would be to deny truth. So I think it would be our spiritual death if we stopped loving God with all our minds and thinking about it I think it's our spiritual death. It's also our spiritual death in witness to the world that we're not credible, that we are bigoted, that we have a blind faith, and that this this is what we are accused of. 
And I think it is essential for us or we'll end up like some small sect somewhere that retained a certain dress or a certain language and they end up so marginalized, totally marginalized, and I think that would be a great tragedy for the church for us to become marginalized in that way. The doctrine of inerrancy becomes useless when men like Wright and Keller and Walkie let atheists weigh in on what parts of the Bible are acceptable to believe. And while they don't explicitly deny Scripture, their reinterpretation relegates it to a meaningless text. It's true that not all scholars, that not all scholars who take such positions call themselves evangelicals, but they wield great authority in evangelical circles, and their capitulation is spreading like a disease. And I'll be quicker on the other two. Sexuality. Boy, we could spend weeks on this right now. Of course, if Genesis isn't true, and if God didn't create us male and female after his image, and if we're merely the products of materialistic evolution, then an entirely different philosophy emerges. One that includes our own ability to define ourselves and our sexuality. You can identify however you like. And when the church in her temptation to be relevant to the world succumbs to this temptation, then our ship has lost its moorings and is adrift. Feminist Ann Douglas, in her book, which I'd recommend, The Feminization of American Culture, observed that the decline of Calvinistic theology in the churches, which provided, quote, preservative for all virtues, even those of gentleness and generosity, was supplanted by a weak sentimentalism that could not provide the foundations for true virtue. She goes on to say that adult politics have succumbed to infantile piety, ecclesia to a nursery. Masculinity is vanquished in the congregation and even more significantly in the pulpit. That this temptation is not limited to openly liberal churches, but also threatens the circles that we travel in. For example, last July, Memorial Presbyterian PCA Church in St. Louis, Missouri, hosted a conference titled Revoice. The promotional material for the Revoice Conference adopted the tag sexual minorities to describe the people that they were seeking to minister to. And who are they? Well, it varies in their material, but they lead off with this. Here's a quote from their promotional material. Supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. A while back, Ed Wagner showed me an article out of the New Oxford Review which described a four-step approach to how this synchronistic process works. At first, a contrary view asked to be tolerated. Just leave us alone and stop prosecuting and persecuting us. Next, they want to be accepted. Befriend us. Third, endorse us. Give us rights, protections, and fourth, and this was the objective from the beginning, 
All those who oppose this alien philosophy are considered bigots to be mocked and accused of hatred. The Bible has been twisted beyond recognition to justify LBGT+. You can fill in the blank for the plus. It's been justified to justify the LBGT plus movement and the church in many quarters has goose-stepped right along with the marching band. Pastor Wilson wrote, The threat of the sexual revolution, the sexual tsunami that is about to hit the PCA beaches, is a gargantuan threat and there has been virtually no response to speak of. Declaring war on the sexual revolution might get you in some real trouble. It might cost you something substantial out in the real world. You see, that handful of revoice presenters represented what most think will be the future of the country, and therefore the PCA, and what not a few want to be the future of the PCA and the country. Now, I am only touching on these subjects, on these subjects. But the threats are deep and they are broad. I'll remind you, Francis Schaeffer wrote in 1978, boy, this seems uh, so obvious now, but uh, he, says, he said this, the thinkables of the 80s and 90s will certainly include things which most people today find unthinkable and immoral even unimaginable and too extreme to suggest. Yet, since they do not have some overriding principle that takes them beyond relativistic thinking, when these become thinkable and acceptable in the 80s and 90s, most people will not even remember that they were unthinkable in the 70s. They will slide into each new thinkable without a jolt. And there is a long, long list of unthinkables just waiting right now in the wings to become the new thinkables tomorrow. The church is called to be salt and light to preserve the world. And Jesus warned salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One more, psychology. In an article by Pastor Steve Cole, I like the title, How John Calvin Led Me to Repent of Christian Psychology. He made several relevant points regarding the impact of the insidious syncretism that has crept into the church. As he read through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and also a Christian psychology book, he said the contrast between Calvin on the one hand and Christian psychology, the Christian psychology book on the other were day and night. Cole said, I had to repent of the psychologized version of the faith that I had drifted into and turn back to God-centered Christianity found on the all-sufficient Christ and the Scriptures, just as in Israel of old men, and he quotes from 2 Kings 17, feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations. So I believe many American Christians have fallen into synchronistic, a synchronistic blending of Christianity and worldly psychology, but the two do not mix. Now, I've got a, several quotes here just to wrap this up. 
Calvin starts the Institutes in quite the opposite direction. For as a veritable world, world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what's more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Dave Hunt and T.A. McMahon wrote in their book, The Seduction of Christianity. The seduction of Christianity is definitely not confined to fringe elements. The Freudian, Jungian myths of psychic determinism and the unconscious have been so universally accepted that these unfounded assumptions now exert a major influence upon Christian thinking throughout the church. As a major vehicle of this seduction that unites most of its elements, again the phrase, psychology is a Trojan horse par excellence that has slipped past every barrier. J. Adams. Because of the teaching of scriptures, of the scriptures, one is forced to conclude that much of clinical and counseling psychology as well as most of psychiatry has been carried on without license from God and in autonomous rebellion against him. This was inevitable because the word of the sovereign God of creation has been ignored. In that word are, quote, all things pertaining to life and godliness, by it, the man of God, quote, may be fully equipped for every good work, and it is that word and, that, and, and only that word that can tell a poor sinner how to love God with all of his heart and mind and soul and how to love his neighbor with the same depth of concern that he exhibits toward himself. Martin Gross observes in his book, The Psych Psychological Society, when educated man lost faith in formal religion, he required a substitute belief that would be as reputable in the last half of the 20th century as Christianity was in the first. Psychology and psychiatry have now assumed that role. Famed psychologist Carl Rogers confesses, yes, it is true, psychotherapy is subversive. Therapy, theories, and techniques promote a new model of man contrary to that which has been traditionally acceptable, read Christianity. And in his book, The Myth of Psychotherapy, Thomas Saz says, educated in the classics, Freud and the early Freudians remolded these images into and renamed them as medical diseases and treatments. The metamorphosis has been widely acclaimed in the modern world as an epic-making scientific discovery. Alas, it is, in fact, only the clever and cynical destruction of the spirituality of man 
and its replacement by a positive science of mind. And then finally, on this point, Martin and Deidre Bobgan in their book, The Psychological Way, The Spiritual Way, said this, The recipe was simple. Replace the cure of souls with the cure of minds by confusing an abstraction, mind, with a biological organ, brain, and thus uh, convince people that mental healing and medical healing are the same. Stir in a dash of theory disguised as fact, call it all science, and put it into medicine, and the rest is history. When the rise... Uh, With the rise of psychotherapy, there was a decline in the pastoral cure of souls until it is now almost non-existent. So let me conclude here. Sola Scriptura. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and virtue. The confessional doctrine of Scripture's self-attestation is threatened by those who subordinate God's testimony and Scripture to a contrary yet allegedly reliable testimony in nature. We can only believe Scripture, they say, when nature agrees with what we read in Scripture. But they have it exactly backwards. Any Reformed Christian should be able to tell you that. You interpret nature in terms of the Word of God, not vice versa. You see, the fall had noetic effects of sin. That is, sin affected the mind, and it needs to be corrected before we can understand things properly. The sufficiency of Scripture is challenged on several fronts. Have we forgotten that there was a Reformation? At the root of many of the attacks upon the Word of God, we find research, writings, pronouncements, and politics founded on the, on presuppositional, uh, on the presupposition of epistemological neutrality. In other words, we start with a blank slate. We, we're neutral. We're going to look at all the facts, and we're going to come to a conclusion. That's a false idea and a corruption of the common grace doctrine that effectively ends up subordinating the Word of God to sinful, autonomous reason and observation. The unbelieving doctrine of knowledge is that nothing is known unless man knows it, but the doctrine of our faith is that God knows everything and he shares some of his knowledge with us. Therefore, he is the original knower, we are the analogical knowers, we know after the pattern of God, we are dependent knowers, And he is the independent knower. But if we stand back a bit, we'll hear the same question being asked that was asked in the Garden of Eden. Has God indeed said? This doubt was followed by denial. This is a word of possibility, a word of flux, a word of chance as over against God's certain word. This is the basic issue. Who speaks the certain word? Is it God or man? Who's to say? The modern compromisers still pay lip service to the Bible. They say that it is indeed God's word, but it's not the last word. But that's the original temptation. God is 
uncreated and man is created. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But man is finite, he's temporal and changeable. And therefore, we are utterly dependent upon God for our being, our ethics, and our knowledge as well. Adam and Eve were tempted to determine knowledge and ethics for themselves, not according to a word from God. All you have to do is forget that other certain word about dying if you eat. And then all kinds of things will open up. That's that's what's being offered to us today. A compromise here is the end of the faith in seed form. What's happened? Let me ask you, has truth changed? If truth has changed, then God has changed. But the Bible says, I am the Lord. I change not. The Bible says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom... There is no variation or shadow of turning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its certainty. We thank you for its authority and infallibility. We thank you for your church, which is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Lord, protect us from those who would assail that truth, who would water it down or seek to undermine it, whether the church is a as an institution, as a body, or whether it was our local church or our denomination or us as a family or us individually. Help us to see the threat that that is to our lives and to eternity and to the future and to our children and our children's children. Help us to be true to the word and sacraments that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are always calls for openness. We change uh, and our circumstances change, but the Word of God is unchangeable. All the struggles we face today can and must be seen in light of this hatred of a final, unchangeable Word and a willingness, if not a lust, to cash it in for a few thrills of some possibility. If you can change the Word at one point, you can change it at all points because God's Word is one. The Reformed faith is an organic system of truth. God's Word is not unclear. The problem is, it's too clear. But they don't like what they hear. Abraham Kuyper said this, Satan knows that he can undermine the structure of the church by slyly removing just one fundamental doctrine at a time. He frequently loosens a large foundation gradually, chiseling it away bit by bit. That is why tolerance for the sake of peace may be dangerous. By giving in, one step will lead to a next step and will not And will not God visit us with blindness if we deliberately darken the truth He has graciously entrusted to us? How shall we justify ourselves if we permit even a little of the truth to be laid aside? Is that ours to do? 
When peace is injurious to the truth, peace must give way. Peace with God is of greater value than peace with men. And so we have come again to the table of the Lord, and in this sacrament we are called again to renew our covenant with God to be his loyal and faithful followers all the days of our lives, to abide in his word, and to have his word abide in us. Amen. Father, we thank you now for this table, for this bread and wine, for this gift from you, this constant reminder of your faithfulness, that in fact you don't change, that Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that we were the objects of your love before the foundation of the world. And here we are today, on this day, to start a new week, about to eat and drink and remember. So help us, Lord, as we do so, to do so by faith, with sincerity of heart, that we might go forth and live for your glory in the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our loving Heavenly Father, we exalt and honor your name, for your loving kindness is better than life. We praise you for your perfect love, which is directed toward innocent and worthy objects. For you love that which is true, good, and beautiful. O Lord, you display your love to all your creation, animate and inanimate, and you have pronounced it to be good. But Lord, the objects of your love extend beyond that which is innocent to include a general kindness to that which reaches down toward all your creatures, whether innocent or guilty, sending rain upon the just and the unjust. Your loving compassion attends to those who suffer and who are in distress. Even we, the guilty, have known such love as is displayed in your long-suffering, in your constant offers of mercy, and in the gift of your Son. Herein, your your loving mercy is felt in the power of your abundant pardon. This aspect of holy love, O God, can't be shown to the innocent, but only to the guilty. Bless now our day, our rest, our feasting, and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.